What is up, Charleston basketball fans? Happy March Madness to you all. I hope you've got your brackets printed, your upset picks ready. Uh, It's been a while since we last spoke. Last week, we took off. We were prepping for a Monday night CAA tournament semifinals against UNCW, and I take it by now, you probably know how that game ended for the College of Charleston. No NCAA tournament for the Cougars this year, but certainly not all is lost. A successful season down in Chucktown. This is probably going to be our last episode of the year, uh, unless there's another crazy emergency podcast needed for some reason. So as we've done in the past, this episode is going to be our season recap, and it's going to be a jam-packed episode. We have so much to get to. The Cougars look so much different than they did this time last year. Our pal Redshirt Jr. is back, and we're going to quickly go over what happened in the CAA tournament. Got to cover the postseason a little bit. Then we'll get into our highlights from the season, uh, the major themes from the year, how we're going to remember Pat Kelsey's first season as head coach of CFC. And then we'll look ahead to the offseason. It's going to be another important offseason for the Cougars. Uh, They've got to retain their players. They've got some roster spots to fill. We expect them to be active in the transfer portal once again. Uh, And we even know some details about next year's schedule. You know, a handful of games have already been set, so we're going to look ahead to that. The CAA is going to look totally different. JMU is out. New teams are in, so the conference schedule is going to be a little bit different. Looking back, looking ahead, that's what this episode is all about. But I just want to say thank you to everyone who listened this year, who subscribed, followed us on Twitter and Instagram this season. There's definitely a buzz around the program. I experienced that this year. Things are really looking up. You can feel it. Uh, But seriously, just appreciate everyone's engagement with Holy City Hoops and the support uh, you all gave me this past season. It's been loads of fun. So without further ado, let's get into today's show. All right, Charleston fans, joining us for the annual end of the season podcast episode is our good pal, Redshirt Jr. The last time I saw you, you were sitting behind the Cougar bench at the Drexel game. I did not get to catch up with you afterward. How did how did that game go for you? Uh, it was a bit soul crushing, I have to say. <laughs> it was it was a great game, and you know, great seats. It's like watching a game at the deck is hard to beat. Uh, very intimate, but then obviously the result was uh, pretty tough to take. And I was pretty vocal the whole time, trying to show out for Charleston, and then surrounded deep behind enemy lines, and it was a. Uh, yeah, that was a that was a soul crusher for sure. Put Charleston in the sixth seed. Although maybe maybe it was good to avoid Delaware. Delaware ends up winning the whole CA tournament. So maybe it was a blessing in disguise. I don't know. Yeah, that was that was tough because that really was, you know, like the last meaningful game of the season. And then uh, yeah. to end, you know, one point loss where it comes apart at the end was a little symbolic maybe. But I was like <laughs> a little bit of a precursor. Right. And and I had like like you know, a couple of days removed, it was like, wow, you know, that was awesome to catch the team that close. I was like sitting next to Everett doing the commentary, like could hear him making the calls. So it was a great experience, but yeah, a little tough that's to cool. And that's, that's a very polite way for you to describe the DAC of a Drexel as intimate. Many would call it sparsely populated and, <laughs> and, and empty, but intimate's a good word. Yeah, it's nice. I, any, any opposing fan, it's kind of a, it's a good opportunity to see your team on the road. Yeah. Yeah, I've been to the deck. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed myself. It is you are like right on top of the court, which is pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Well, as part of this 
tradition of the last podcast of the season. We will look back at the season as a whole. We'll preview the offseason ahead and, and kind of what the main priorities are for the Cougars. Last time we did this last year, uh, things quickly went off the rails because the day we were recording is when Earl Grant was announced to BC. So it turned into a crazy, like, speculative who's going to be the next coach, where are all the players going to transfer to kind of episode. I think this year is going to be a little bit more calm. I don't think we're going to see anywhere near the same number of uh, player transfers and roster upheaval that we saw last year. But I think going into next year, the Cougars are going to, expectations are going to be a little bit higher. So we'll talk about that. But let's start by just, uh, let's start with the CAA tournament. You know, the last meaningful games of the year. Charleston does get, you know, a season highlight. They upset Hofstra in that 3-6 game. Charleston was the underdog on Ken Palm, underdog from a seeding perspective. I'm so happy they got a postseason win for Pat Kelsey and for the young the young guys. They dominate Hofstra, 92-76. Really encouraging that they did not totally squander a 24-point lead. I think Hofstra cut it down to 7, and then Charleston really pushed back and, and stretched it back out to that final margin. John Meeks was the story. Season high, 31 points for him. He really showed out in this game. Uh, what were your takeaways from the Hofstra game? Uh, yeah, biggest takeaway is, like you mentioned, the young guys getting a playoff win and young guys stepping up in that game because uh, we had two freshmen in double figures, which was uh, Raekwon and, and Rain, and four guys in double figures, which, you know, when that's happening, we, we looked a lot better than in games where it's, you know, just relying more on Meeks and Underwood. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we shot the lights out. It was, like, possibly the best execution we've had all year, you know, and a great time to have that. And, you know, Pat Kelsey's record in conference tournaments is pretty good. So, you know, you feel optimistic, I guess, going into the tournament that, you know, we're playing our best ball of the season, which is has been the goal. And, you know, you have an experienced coach. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of like Nirvana watching that. That was like – it was beautiful. And uh, you kind of knew that we weren't going to be able to shoot that well, you know, two games in a row that it was, it was a bit like, you know, a bit of luck maybe, but yeah, just, a, just a really cohesive performance. You knock out a Hofstra team that some people thought was going to make a run to the championship game. You knock out the player of the year and Aaron Estrada. I think a lot of Charleston fans were really, really encouraged going into that UNCW game, especially since Hofstra had swept Charleston in the regular season, just like UNCW had. I believe Charleston was a betting favorite going into UNCW, despite the Seahawks being, you know, co-champions of the league. By the time Charleston plays, also Towson gets knocked out. So then you like really start feeling like a caffeine buzz from the Charleston fans who are like, oh man, this is like, might actually really set up well for the Cougars. Could we like actually win this thing as a six seed? And, uh, you know, we have to talk about the the last call late in that game, John Meeks uh, gets isolated, pump fakes, drives to the rim, call for the offensive foul, game over, season over. I was there. I was recording it on my phone just in case I got the game-winning shot and was going to post it. Did not go that way. I um, I was like right at the corner of the tunnel too, so I saw the guys leaving. Meeks had tears running down his face. Uh, Seachin was crying. A couple other players were like clearly emotional I got a high five from Nick Farrar that was cool but yeah just a a tough tough way to end the year even though you show a lot of fight I'll open it up to you first what what'd you think of the call what'd you think of the game well the call was horrible um in (laughs) in a game with a lot of horrible calls like you can say that they were pretty consistent 
but like you said it's it's guys you know crying it's the last game of their career and as disappointed as I was and, and upset as I was it's like, to put yourself in that position it, it really sucks for the players ultimately and I know that you know people the, the dialogue on Twitter all game was kind of like both sides you know feeling like how can you uh, insert yourself so much into a game where like you know you've got like super seniors playing possibly their last game it's just sad to see uh something like that to decide the outcome uh, obviously there's there's a lot of things you could point to that again similar to a lot of charleston games you know one break goes differently and you know that decides the game and, and we're not in that position but i mean with the, there was national media attention for the call it, it was amazingly bad i i tried to get out as out of my social media bubble and just see what the general chatter was because obviously all the charleston fans hated the call mm. And it was universally called out as a as a terrible call. Everyone from Stan Van Gundy to Rex Chapman to even the idiots at Barstool thought it was the wrong call. And the only people I saw defending the call were UNCW fans. And even they were like, yes, on paper, it's probably a defensive foul. But if you looked at the game and how it was being called the whole time, like that was the best way the Seahawks fans could defend it and hey i i would have been in that boat too if situation was reversed but yeah i mean it, it this whole like conference tournament season has, has actually the call versus or the block versus charge has been called out many times scott van pelt was talking about it the other day mm-hmm. college basketball's just gotta gotta work on that but you're absolutely right this the end of this game was definitely like a microcosm of the season because yes it came down to the final possession but we had John Meeks turning the ball over late, the terrible telegraphed pass that led to a UNCW dunk. We had Demetrius Underwood missing free throws in the clutch, which has been an issue for him all season. Like Danny Johnson says, you don't win or lose on, on one possession. And Meeks has had turnover issues all year. Underwood's had free throw issues all year. And um, it bites Charleston again. Now, those guys have been great. They're Charleston's two best players. They're all CAA caliber guys. But, you know, if you're going to put the ball in their hands late, they've got to execute. And unfortunately, they made a couple uh, mistakes down the stretch. Yeah, and it's it, we didn't really get the same type of, uh, like, deep effort that we got uh, scoring-wise in the game before with Hofstra. I think maybe, maybe two guys in double figures. And what stood out to me... The box score was three assists and 16 turnovers, which is just, I mean, three assists is, is the lowest of the season. And that was our worst assist to turnover ratio of the season. And it's actually kind of amazing that we, we had those numbers and were that close. Like it, it's hard to do a three to 16 assist to turnover and, and, you know, have a lead late in the game and like be in position to win the game. Yeah. See the Seahawks defense was really, was really good on Charleston. I thought Charleston played good defense too. It was Definitely like a slugfest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not the high-scoring, like free-flowing offense we maybe expected. But yeah, you you only get the two double-digit scores, Underwood and Horton. Horton has a double-double, mm. but 16 points combined from Meeks, Tucker, and Smith. You know, three of your top four scores is uh, going to need more in a postseason game. So Charleston falls in this one, 60 to 57. UNCW then gets knocked out in the championship game ending their season they don't get an nit bid or an ncaa tournament bid and delaware is the champs and representing the caa in march madness what are are your thoughts on the blue hens 
I think they're a really interesting team. Uh, just the way that Jair Davis has come on uh, with Dylan Painter's initially with Dylan Painter's injury. Now, now they're both sort of rotating, but uh, I mean, the first half of the season, we didn't really see him play or didn't see him play much. And it's, you know, we sort of saw Delaware get off to like underachieving uh, with a squad that has been around forever and, and sort of think, Oh, like here they go again, they're preseason favorite and you know, they're going to be a five seed, but down the stretch with Jair Davis playing uh, different team, scary team and and that's like charleston getting that win on the road by three i think davis had 20 points or something it's like we things start breaking where we're playing unc wilmington and we know delaware is in the final again feeds your optimism a bit but i do think that delaware you know they're going to be probably like a 15 seed something like that mm-hmm. it's going to be tough for them to pull off an upset but i also think you know the ken palm numbers and stuff that we have on them probably still are selling them a little short because you know, half the season, you're sort of looking at a different team where the second half of the season, they're, they're playing a lot better. And I think it is, we'll see how, how relevant it is, but I think it's good to have a team that's that experienced uh, going into March, you know, guys transferring down from like big East schools, like should have the talent to make it a game depending on who they play. Hopefully they can get a win for the CAA. It's been a hot minute since the CAA got an NCAA tournament win. I did not know Jair Davis's backstory. I thought he was a true freshman up until the tournament started. Did you know that? I only only reason I didn't know or like that I knew he wasn't a true freshman is because I did the like transfers article at the beginning of the season. So right, but it was like there was nothing on him. So I think I had him probably in the you know like in a category where I wrote like one sentence. I was like, oh, and by the way, this guy's a transfer. Like kind of like no analysis because. Yeah, well, he, he was getting big-time offers out of high school mm-hmm. in Delaware, and he goes to Providence, doesn't play. Providence is a great team. Doesn't get any minutes, comes back home to Delaware. I, yeah, I thought he was a true freshman this whole time, which kind of makes me upset that he beat out Rain Smith for Rookie of the Year because yeah. he did. it's like Blake Griffin winning Rookie <laughs> of the Year in his second year. I'm like, mm, yeah, there's not apples to apples. There. Yeah, but he's he's going to be a great player if he st- sticks around the CAA. Yeah, so. and and I mean, I guess on one hand, I hope he doesn't. I don't want to go against him. But very yeah. fun to watch, and it's a pretty cool story. Uh, you know, like his post-game interview was pretty cool, uh, talking about coming back to Delaware to do what he did. Yeah. Charleston will not play in the postseason. Uh, Matt Roberts came out and said, it's NCAA or NIT. We're not settling for any of these third-tier postseason tournaments which i like he came out and said that a year or two ago uh during the earl grant regime i like setting the bar that high even even with a young team so end of the season for charleston and now we can pivot to kind of zooming out a little bit and thinking about the season as a whole so my first question to you do you deem this season as a success i do deem it as a success but i feel like i have pretty abstract criteria or like an abstract uh approach i mean sort of pat kelsey has as well you know going into the season calling it calling it an experiment which i really think is fitting even at the end here uh i wrote down a couple words on themes and experiment was the first word and uh you know it was kind of like this team could have gone you know could have had a terrible non-conference could have you know been a bottom half i mean they were a bottom half seat but but like a you know we could have been 
five and 13 or whatever in conference play. And it wouldn't have been fun, but I think Charleston fans had pretty realistic expectation that, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen. These guys are playing together for the first time. It's, I think it's better to, to judge the success based on, you know, how much did they grow? You know, how's the culture of the program coming together? And by those standards, I think, you know, the results pretty much speak for themselves and there's a lot to be excited about going forward. So I think we did better than expected in the non-con, better than expected in the conference schedule. And while you'd like to have gotten better than a six seed, it's, you know, the first year and, and, you know, losing a point guard, losing bowl on the injury, Demetrius Underwood stepping up to play point guard for the first time in his life, like all these wild yeah. factors and still had a lot of success. And you're, you're one second away from the fifth seed right? and possibly a, a game away from the fourth, which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, I said this early on in the season, either on my podcast or someone else's about what goals Charleston would have to hit to exceed expectations. Because I, I agree with you. Like I tried not to buy into the hype because I know how tough it is to be a, a first time, a first year coach at a, at a new destination. And secondly, just, a completely, completely new roster, like more so than any other team in Division One basketball. So I, I had said, avoid the playing round. This is before JMU was leaving. So this was get the sixth seed or higher. Check. Charleston did that. Uh, win more games than you lose. Finish above 500. They didn't do it in conference play, but they did it for the season as a whole. Maybe win a CAA tournament game. I thought that was, you know, lofty. Uh, and if you're in the play-in round, maybe you you advance there, but Charleston does that as well. They upset Hofstra and then uh, get quality minutes from the freshmen and ideally identify some freshmen who are long-term building pieces. Definite check mark there. Rain and Ben are both on the all-rookie team, and I think everybody's as high, if not higher, on Farrar and Horton, who really finished, finished the season on a, on a strong note. So, I mean, by all those metrics, it was definitely a success. And I think you definitely feel the Charleston, College of Charleston community kind of rallying behind the team, especially during that those two days in March. Um, I mentioned they were few calls away, a call away from going to the CAA championship game, which definitely would have exceeded expectations. Definitely a season of what ifs. I'll, I'll get to those later. And there's definitely some major themes, but uh, all in all, yeah, I, I definitely deem it a success. Yeah, and, and so much to look forward to. Like, even in the moments where we blow a lead late in the game, like the Drexel game that I'm at, like, the result is not good. But the whole time I'm, I'm watching the game, I'm just like, oh, man, we're, like, we're going to be so good. Like, watching Raekwon Horton, <laughs> like, I love it. Like, uh, you know, you can really see the trajectory of the team, I guess, which I'm like, I'm already excited yeah. for next year. I mean, we could be look how William and Mary fans are reacting in year three of Dane Fisher. Like it is not good on the message boards. And he was coach of the year his first year, had a really good first season, and now it's like completely tanked and like reality setting in. So it is very easy to miss on, you know, hiring a coach. It's very easy to really struggle in your first season in a new league and all every, almost everybody on the team, with the exception of Tucker, Smart, and Farrar, has gone up a level of play in their basketball careers to, to be at Charleston, either from high school or from the D2 or Juca level, D3, or a lower tier like the Patriot League and, and Bucknell. 
So overall success, let's talk about some of the major themes of the season. We've alluded to these when we talked about the CA tournament game. I have a few that I'll, I'll rattle off quickly and then I'll turn things over to you. Um, first off, the tempo, the pace as advertised. Like we expected run and gun from Pat Kelsey and we were up until recently the number one team in the country in tempo. St. Jo- <laughs> You're shaking your head. St. John's passed us at the very end of the season. But when our season ended, number one in the country in adjusted tempo. Um, we saw the hockey line changes. We saw the depth. Like we saw the threes and layups. Everything we thought we were getting from Pat Kelsey in terms of style of play came to fruition. A lot of close games. A lot of close games. That was definitely a major theme. 24 of the 32 games Charleston played were decided by less than 10 points. That was the highest number of single-digit games in the country. It was the highest when they played UNCW, and then that game was in single digits. So I guess they got the record. Um, Never lost a CAA game by more than eight points, which is a crazy stat. Charleston was in every single game. Like I said, a season of what-ifs because a lot of these games could have gone either way. Losing big leads late was certainly theme of the season and we saw it via missed free throws and turnovers just like in the um the uncw game we saw it via bad shot selection defending without fouling or fouling while defending tied to that is no pure point guard on the team which continued to rear its head all season long underwood did a great job filling in but he's a former power forward famir ali transfers out nikita Evdokimov comes in but he's fresh off a flight from Russia and like never really gets his footing. But the lack of a pure point guard really caused Charleston to like bog down in their sets, especially late in games. They didn't have someone who could hang onto the ball, get fouled and make free throws. I think it contributed to a lot of those, those clunky losses. So those are a few of of my themes that I'm going to remember from this season. What about you? Yeah, I think those are some solid themes, especially the pace. I, I neglected that one in my themes and uh, that I mean, I, the style of play is so engaging that, like you said, it's as advertised. We've seen Pat Kelsey do it, and well, it's, I was it's watching Earl Grant and Boston College in the ACC tournament. And I was like, oh yeah, that's what it used to look like. Yeah, it's it's an amazing. It might be like the the most stark contrast in playing styles between like any team that had a coaching change. But um, yeah. for for my themes, I just wrote down single words uh, mostly. So I had experiment. Uh, mm-hmm. growth, rebounds, turnovers, and then my multiple word one is struggles with late game execution. <laughs> is uh, that is that hyphenated? Yeah, struggles yeah, technically one word. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the rebounds thing really stood out to me. I went back and checked uh, the, the Kempom rebounding, and I think we're 10th at the moment in offensive rebounding percentage and like, yeah. 68th or something in, uh, you know, like, offensive rebounding percentage against so, so limiting offensive rebounds against which is like you know that was something i didn't really expect coming in just you know not you know not really feeling like we have this huge post presence team obviously you know knowing oc lampton you know not really sure what's going to happen and then knowing like meeks is more of a scorer the amount that we dominated the glass uh, i think leaves a lot of room for optimism because that is kind of a you know like one through five type of rebounding style and like very aggressive and something that kept us in a lot of games where you know we're in never losing really by more than eight or whatever uh sometimes the shots aren't falling but we're getting you know a third chance on our possession so that's huge 
Yeah, I think you have to credit the coaching staff for that. And as much as we bemoan Underwood playing point guard, he's a big reason why they were such a good offensive rebounding team. Like you put a power forward as your point guard, you're going to get boards. And the team, despite being a run and gun team, was not a great shooting team from the free throw line or from behind the arc. And so they kind of adjusted on the fly into this beast offensive rebounding team, like you said, without the personnel, really. So, yeah, that was a, a really nice surprise. Yeah, and then uh, the only other uh, issue or, like, other side to that is you know, we're not shooting well, so that also allows us to get a lot of offensive You get rebounds. more offensive like, rebounds. We, we could get – I could stand to have less offensive rebounds next year by making For shots. For draining threes. Yeah, yeah, I like the culture, yeah. though. Yeah, it's it's funny to to look back and listen to old podcasts or read you know initial like preseason previews, and we didn't know what we were gonna get. It, like you said, it was this big experiment, and for the most part, things worked out. Meeks, as advertised, one of the best transfers Charleston's ever had. Underwood played pretty well for a guy playing out of position, coming from not just D two but D three, third team All CAA and all-defensive team. Uh, Rain and Ben, the two Winthrop recruits who followed Kelsey, worked out great. Raekwon Horton and Nick Farrar looked great. You can go up and down the roster, but this goes back to what I believe is a successful first season for, for Pat Kelsey. I have a few highlights of the season, and I have some lowlights. Which would you like me to start with? Let's start with the highlights. Okay, start with the highlights. All right, I have 10 of them. Do you want me to just read them off and, and you react? Uh, sure. All right. Number one highlight of the year for me, the atmosphere in the first half versus North Carolina at home. That was the first one I wrote down. Absolutely lit. Like first post-COVID college basketball crowd for a lot of people, including the Tar Heels. Start the game with the alley-oop to Babacar Fi, blows the roof off the place, looks great on TV. Rain and Ben Burnham are drilling threes in that first half where Brendan Tucker's dunking on the fast break, just like absolute euphoria. Things turn in the second half. UNC pulls away with, with the win, but in terms of like bringing the crowd back, bringing the party back, bringing the energy, everything lined up going into that UNC game. And it was also like all the momentum from the three and O start all at home, man, it was just, it was a, a plus atmosphere at TD. Yeah, and, and the first half of that game, it's like, oh, we're we're gonna be undefeated this year. Like it was, it really. Yeah, yeah. You said euphoria, um, and yeah, I di- I didn't even really think about it in that context though. That it was like a lot of people's first, you know, major crowd experience back, and even having like some sort of threat to the season in like January. You know, a lot of guys testing positive and stuff. It's it's kind of a nice poetic scene to to see that at TD. Yeah, so that was awesome. Second highlight of the year was the season opener. So that was another form of just like, we have hit the jackpot with Pat Kelsey. Score 100 points, win by 30. Looking back at that starting lineup is pretty wild. It was Underwood, Smith, Phi, Meeks, and Lampton, which is pretty pretty strange to, to think back on. I think Brendan Tucker was in like the third tier off the bench. But we just everything we hoped it would be came to fruition the threes, the dunks, the fast break, the pace, the crazy defense. SC State, not a great team, but really fun way to kick off the season. 
Yeah, and it was a like like a slightly improved version of SC State. Like we we always play them early in the season, and you know it's historically a, a tune-up game. But you know they, I think they have a new coach this year, maybe last year, Coach Madlock, and his his son plays. So it was like a little bit better version of them. And yeah, to to come out and look like that, it was like I think the the thing I tweeted was like the Pat Kelsey era, like. I think I said euphoria or something like it was really, you know, riding a high that opening stretch. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That was a fun one. Third one for me, breaking the Kaplan curse. We forget that Charleston finally broke their curse at William and Mary. It was the first CA road win for the Pat Kelsey coaching staff. I know the players didn't talk about it until after the game, but we're well aware of never getting a win in Williamsburg going into that game. They dominate William and Mary, finally get the monkey off their back. That was a good one. Yeah, and also William and Mary, at that point, like a little more, like, you know, still you're a little scared of them. Like, okay, you think bottom of the conference team, but they've been able to, like, pull off these shocking upsets. Like, you're definitely not yeah. taking anything for granted. Yeah, I was I was nervous going in. I didn't, It was not going to be as much of a cakewalk as it looked like it was going to be. Charleston takes care of business. Mm-hmm. The Elon comeback slash Nick Ferrar unconscious game, where this must be what we felt after the Drexel game is what Elon must have felt after the Nick Ferrar game. Same exact thing where Elon's up the entire game until Nick Ferrar scores the final four points, including knocking down a jumper with two seconds to play to give Charleston their first lead and the, the win for the game. I know that must have gutted Elon, but it was so sweet to watch a comeback like that. And Nick Farrar just could not miss. And that was one of the more fun online experiences as a Charleston fan. Yeah. And like just the the sort of hopefully sign of things to come with Farrar, you know, taking over like late in the game and that high arcing jump shot, soul crushing for the Elon fans. Dead eye yeah. all night. Mm-hmm. Number five, we've already talked about kicking Hofstra's ass in the CA quarterfinals and John Meeks going off. That was awesome. Postseason win always feels good. Number six for me was the Chattanooga game winner from Demetrius Underwood, which going back is probably Charleston's best win of the year in terms of quality of opponent. Chattanooga is one of two NCAA tournament teams that Charleston has beaten, Delaware being the other one, obviously. John Meeks goes for the game winner, misses Demetrius Underwood. We just talked about how good of an offensive rebounder he is, tips it back in. Charleston gets a really, really strong road win. That was a great one. Yeah, and and at the time, you know, I thought Chattanooga was going to be pretty good. And then we saw throughout the course of the season, like, they are an NCAA tournament quality team. Um, So, yeah, I was actually watching that game. I was visiting my brothers around Thanksgiving, and we were, like, out shopping or something, like, running errands. And I'm, like, watching Charleston on my phone in, like, the wrong time zone, uh, cutting in and out. But, yeah, that was was a huge win. Yeah. Number seven for me is the Dunkfest slash Ken Burnham highlight against Northeastern. Ben ends up on SportsCenter the next day, but that was one of four dunks and five dunk attempts, if you count the Brendan Tucker off the <laughs> off the hardwood windmill attempt to, to close the game. That was great. I mean, Northeastern had a really tough season, but always a tough place to play a game and to win. And it was all highlights. It was started with the Evdokimov dunk, Finish with Babakar Fai and Smart dunking, and then of course the the Ben Burnham one that was all over Sports Center. Yeah, and that was in the middle of, of the sort of road trip from hell to end the season too. So yep. yeah, and that in a hostile environment. All right, this next one is more of a uh, topic, a concept rather than an individual moment. 
And this could very well be number one for you, Raekwon Horton's development over the course of the season. I have never seen a player improve so much from the first game to the last game. I mean, here, here's some numbers that I, I pulled. Raekwon Horton's first six games with the Cougars, zero total points, 52 minutes, about eight minutes a game, 0 for 13 from the field, 0 for 2 from the free throw line, 10 total rebounds. Raekwon Horton's final six games, 64 points, 10 points per game, 150 minutes, about 25 minutes per game, 22 for 38 from the field. He was over 50% all six of those games, 7 for 15 from three, almost 50%, 13 for 15 from the line, 86%, and 40 rebounds. He was basically averaging 10.6 points and 6.6 rebounds a game, the home stretch. And he turned from a guy who like looked like he had a lot of potential, but was a really raw prospect. I know Pat Kelsey, when we spoke in the first episode of the season, was talking about Raekwon was making all these mistakes in practice. And then by the end of the year, he's a guy who's starting a postseason game and gives you a double-double. Like crazy steep development path for Raekwon. Yeah, and you mentioned before, like it was after the last UNC Wilmington loss, he was really frustrated with the loss. Like you can tell he's so invested in in winning, invested in the team. And yeah, to see him go from I remember like the uh the Kelsey soundbite, he said, like, you don't know if it's gonna be good or bad, but like he's gonna do something. And yeah, through those first six games, really kind of saw that where, you know, he he's like beats his guy off the dribble but then doesn't finish or you know something like that and yeah I mean watching him at the end of the season it's like every time he does something I just want to tweet Raekwon Horton like I just it's like wow are you guys watching this uh yeah I mean you could tell he is high ceiling I I brought two of my buddies two of my roommates from Charleston to the UNCW game in DC two guys who are not could give less of a crap about college Charleston basketball but came to support me, I guess. Um, and I was giving them, I was like telling them who's on the team to watch. I was like, okay, John Meeks is our leading scorer. Uh, Rain Smith probably should have won rookie of the year. He's a sharpshooter from Australia, blah, blah, blah. Sometime in the first half, I want to say, they were like, who is Horton? Like, he's incredible. He's so good. Like, how is he not our best player? Like him and Underwood are clearly like our best players. I was like, dude, get on the Raekwon Horton bandwagon now because mm-hmm. he's going to be really solid the next three years. So... This goes to show you uh, the effect that Raekwon has. Mm-hmm. Number nine, Rain Smith breaking the freshman threes record. Again, I thought Rain should have been rookie of the year. I thought his non-conference gave him the edge, but I guess Davis, you know, doing it in conference play, gave him that slight uh, lead. I think the final vote total was 18 to 16. Rain loses out on it. Bummer for Rain, but still a great freshman year. Didn't know what we were going to get from him, and he just had games where he absolutely torched opponents. And if he can develop his game a little bit, and we'll, we'll talk about that, but great freshman season, deservedly sets that freshman threes record and makes a run at most threes in the season. Yeah, and I think with how much he played, obviously I'm biased, I really thought he was going to get the uh, rookie of the year. Because I think if you look at the possessions, it was like Davis played you know, like 1200 possessions on the season or something like that. And then rain probably around more like 3000, like a full season's worth. But at the end of the day, I guess it's really kind of just an accolade. Like he, he put the performance yeah. in and uh, you break the freshman threes record. You're, you're probably onto something. Yeah. And my last highlight of the year was uh short lived, but you have to remember Famir Ali hitting the game tying and game winning 
shots in overtime versus Presbyterian. Turned out to be his last game in a Cougar uniform, uh, but at the time that was definitely a uh, a jolt to the system to see him have a terrible game up to that point and then in the clutch make those two shots to win it. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre to think about now just with what happened leaving the team and and sort of where, I guess, fans, where I was mentally at the time, like this is the point guard of the future. You know, he, he perseveres through, like you said, a bad game and – you know, Coach Kelsey. Pat Kelsey was building him up, right? He was dapping him up. Yeah, like, like it was, it was, you know, brings a tear to your eye to watch it. And uh, yeah, it, it was definitely a poetic moment, but interesting to to look at in in the rear view, sort of like what did we think was going to happen going forward and where we are. Yeah. Any highlights I missed? Anything on your list that I didn't mention? Uh, my highlights were mostly not really like moments. It was kind of like sort of like what you said with like Raekwon Horton player development. Um, I also thought improvement from the veterans, uh, like Brendan Tucker's game and, and yeah. OC, like, again, like he's, I feel like he's improved every year, but you're still kind of like, is he going to start over Lampton heading into the season? Like, don't really know. And then got a ton out of him. Um, obviously last time we spoke, I was making the case for Brendan Tucker to be a starter where, you know, the first game that you, you mentioned, he's like the third, third hockey line coming yeah. out. Um, and, and his finishing at the rim was so much better this year and, obviously shooting the lights out from three to start the year and I mean throughout but yeah. uh yeah I, I was excited to see the Charleston guys uh who stuck around continue to get better too hey things really worked out for Brendan Tucker like could have gone either way and he is a perfect fit for Pat Kelsey's system and I think Pat Kelsey's assistance really got the most out of Brendan because yeah he looked like a totally different player especially shooting from outside way more confident way more aggressive yeah, that's that's definitely a highlight I, I should have had. Yeah, and then the only other one that basically that you hadn't mentioned was um, getting to watch so many new players, uh, just sort of like kind of a, a an embarrassment of riches, sort of like you know the first season or the first game of the season, South Carolina State, totally different lineup like you mentioned uh, compared to the starting lineup at the end of the season, but just like eyes peeled. Like, all right, who's coming off the bench and uh, just getting right. to getting to learn the guys and then sort of see, you know, where we're headed. I thought that was really fun. Was it the South Carolina State game or some other game where Baba Carfi had that first like crazy highlight where he like Euro stepped from the three point line? I was like, what do we have with this guy? Like, yeah, I think that was, <laughs> that, that, was a fun moment. that play was like, yeah, it's like I can't even look. It's too beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, now I don't even want to do the lowlights. I only have three. I like that. I That's have a, a 1A, ratio. a 1B, and a 3. I'm, I'm going to do them quickly. 1A and 1B, the Furman loss and the Drexel loss. Furman loss is 1A for me just because of how it happened. You're up 10 with five minutes to go. You're up six with seconds to go. And then it's the Underwood live turnover and then the uncalled shove in the back. That's called a travel on Underwood. And then uh, Mike Boswell makes the shot of his life where he pivot, pivot, pivots, leans, shoots. We don't foul up three. He sinks the shot. We lose in overtime. Brutal, brutal loss. That took me like several weeks to get over. I don't know if I'm still over it. So when Furman lost at the buzzer to Chattanooga in the SoCon finals, did make me feel pretty good. It's like, finally, karma. And then we, we talked about the last second loss at Drexel. Same kind of thing. Just really hurt. It was so close, especially from a seeding perspective, to get the five seed and possibly the four. 
Um, that one, that one really hurt. I think the worst loss statistically of the year was that Stetson loss. That one's still just kind of like a head scratcher. Like Charleston just didn't show up really in that game and every, nobody played well. And then the UNCW, uh, semifinals loss, which we've discussed, but those, those are the, those are the bad ones. The Furman game was like you said, it, it, that did not go away easily. The, that, the pain of that one where, you know, even even the shot that, that Bothwell hit to win the game is like so improbable. It, it was like just yeah. I don't even the win probability graph of that has to be. I didn't night. even. I never even looked at. Yeah, it. it's all never want to look. Yeah, and and you know, on paper you say we're going to lose to Furman. You'll take that, right? Like they're a really good team. You could yeah. you could be beaten by a lot worse teams like Stetson, but tough to watch. That was that was brutal and sort of you know sign of things to come, I guess. Like not necessarily in that fashion, like that was so exaggerated, but yeah, just sort of seeing like the late game pain. So I was going through, when I was making my highlights and lowlights, I was looking through the box scores of some of those late contested games, and I've teased that this was a season of what-ifs for Charleston. So I don't know how many Marvel fans are out there if you watched Marvel's What If on on Disney+, Plus, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through these rapid fire because I wanted to talk the offseason ahead, but I've got... Just listen to how some of these games could have gone. What if Meeks goes to the line with a chance to win the game against UNCW? That's the first one. Or what if Demetrius Underwood makes his two free throws or his four free throws because he missed the front end of a one and one Is Charleston in the NCAA tournament right now? I don't know. Uh, what if Meeks is not stripped against Delaware in the CAA home opener and he, he wins the game? Uh, what if Meeks makes both free throws at home versus Hofstra? Remember, Meeks had same situation. He was at the line with a chance to go up, chance to go up one against Hofstra at home, misses both free throws. What if Drexel doesn't score with one second to play, or if Underwood makes his free throws in that game against the Dragons, or if he you know doesn't go for the steal? The JMU game at home. What if Rainsmith hits the game winner? You know, if you remember, that was the game Demetrius Underwood had it late. He passed it really. I think Charleston was only down one or two, but he passes to Rain for a, a three. Rain misses it. What if that shot goes down? And what if Bothwell doesn't hit that shot against Furman or if Underwood doesn't get called for a travel late? I mean, that's six games, <laughs> final or close to the final possession. Pretty wild. Yeah, and it's like some of it is so coin flippy, you know? It, it's just like yeah, you, you look at the, you know, 17 and 15 on paper and it's, what is that? What, if, you, if we take those six games, it's, you know, 23 and nine. That's a massive difference, massive difference in our seeding. Like you said, we maybe are at least in the CAA finals. It, it is tough. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you said coin flip because I have six other ones, the same number, that went Charleston's way. Okay. So it, it does seem like they got like a 50-50 split. Mm. Um, the first one being, what if Underwood doesn't tip in the game winner against Chattanooga? Like what if John Meeks just misses it and the ball gets tapped around and, and we don't win? Uh, we don't get that season highlight. Uh, what if Nick Farrar does not go completely nuclear and we lose to Elon as was expected with seconds to play. Um, Meeks got bailed out with a foul call against William and Mary at home. He sinks both free throws to win that game. That was a game Charleston, you know, could have very easily lost the Drexel game at home. So remember Raekwon Horton fouls Coltrane Washington uh, up three from behind the arc. So Coltrane has a chance to tie the game at the line and he misses the first free throw game over. What if Amir Ali doesn't hit the layup and the, the shot to, with 10 seconds to play against Presbyterian? We drop that game. And then 
Do you know? Do you remember who hit the game winner uh, against Old Dominion with 27 seconds to play? I don't remember. The go-ahead a shot, I should say. Babakar Phi. That's right. That was where Babakar Phi did one of his like multiple pivot layup, up fake, and dropped it in. So six games that went against Charleston, six games where it worked out for Charleston. If we can, for my health and for your health, if we can narrow that down and win some games by eight or ten, that would be awesome next year. So let's talk about what what Charleston needs to do to to take the next step uh, next season. What are your What are you looking ahead to? What are What are Charleston's priorities? Uh, well, the obvious thing is a point guard, which I think we've explicitly, or, or some of the coaching staff has explicitly said, you know, we're looking for a point guard in the transfer portal. Um, that's going to be very interesting. I have some, like, it, it's so early to even look at it now and, and say, like, oh, we should get these guys. I'm, and there's so many things that go into it with, you know, personal personal circumstances. But an experienced point guard is necessary. Um, and I, I know we have Jordan Crawford coming in i i think is he is he actually signed or on verbal commits it's just like you know it, it's like an open situation still but i thought he was maybe signed. he hasn't signed yeah right. i don't think the school has announced it okay yet. good prospects coming in to play the point potentially are at least interested where that's also going to be big you know like lay the groundwork for the sort of point guard of the future but i think immediate band-aid for uh, someone to run the offense is, is the first thing and I'm kind of curious about our depth in the front court too, because I thought I thought Lampton was going to play more this year and and play you know better offense. I was figuring it's, this guy's huge and, and no one can guard him in the CAA, but we didn't really get that. So um, I'm, I'm looking for him to take a step forward as well. But then uh, are we going to try to get a transfer a transfer big who you know maybe could play power forward and we have an undersized five with like Fire or Burnham or something? But uh, yeah, kind of point guard and center, the first two things I sort of looking at. Yeah, I have the same first two. So Charleston loses four seniors. They have one freshman coming in, so there's three open spots. I definitely think they'll go point guard in the transfer portal, even if even with Crawford coming in, I think they need more of a veteran presence there. Uh, you lose a lot of size with Meeks and Smart, so you do have to bring in a big. I agree with you. I think I think Lampton's just a tough fit in the CAA with how many teams that go small. That they kind of play play Lampton off the court. I would love to get a guy in the mold of we see a lot of CA players like this, like Estrada and Winter and Sims, like guys who can just take their man off the dribble. And really, Raycon Horton's like the only guy who can do that going into next year. We saw Demetrius Underwood do it all the time, but like drive in, get angles, and score. Uh, I think that's going to be missing, especially if like Burnham, Smith, etc., are all kind of posting up around the arc. So. Uh, but no, one number one priority is point guard. And number two is is somebody with some size. Yeah, and I saw we have uh, we offered Quinn Berger as well, who uh, he's a point guard. So possibly two freshman point guards. I think Berger had offers from Charleston and NJIT, which again I'm biased, but just seems like pretty easy call. Uh, you know, yeah. Charleston would be much more uh, competitive, like much just a more competitive conference, but. Uh, He's the son of a coach who is the coach. Seth Berger is the coach of uh, Westtown who just won a title. They have the number one mm-hmm. recruit in Pennsylvania who's going to Duke, uh, Derek Lively. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of like, he, he's a starter. I think he's averaging like 16 points a game in the, you know, the state tournament or whichever title they won. So I think there's a lot to like sort of uh, with the freshman. We'll see where he signs, but yeah, the, the, 
transfer portal, I was also wondering, because a lot of guys, it says, um, like, they don't have the immediately eligible designation, whereas, like, you know, last year it was, like, a free-for-all. Uh, and it seems yeah. like because it was a free-for-all, a lot of people have transfer records now, and, and they're going to have to sit out a year. So I think that makes it a little tougher, where you're going to have, like, really talented players in the transfer portal, but if they can't play next year, then that, yeah. that doesn't help too much. Yeah, I think we do have an offer out where we've been in touch with Justice Smith, who's a D2 point guard who had like a 56-point game. He's a redshirt freshman who, with some size, kind of a, not a, the most efficient shooter, but I know we haven't, we've been in contact with him. I think you're going to see as teams' seasons end or as coaching changes take place, you're going to see guys throw their names in the portal. I think it's still really early. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, Charleston's entire roster went into the portal within like a three-week span. Over the next, you know, after the NCAA tournament's finished, especially, like, we'll have a much clearer picture of who's even available. But, uh, you know, on the other side, Charleston's got to retain their own players. I don't foresee a lot of Charleston players leaving because so many of them <laughs> have only played here one year. Um, but you got to keep your own players. And you got to have, you know, some internal development here. You can't just depend on guys coming in. So, you know, I already mentioned Rain, you know, figuring out how to score inside the arc. Brendan Tucker might be our leading scorer next year. He's got to be able to be consistent from the line, learn how to pass a little bit better. Guys like Farrar and Lampton need to get their conditioning in shape. We lose a lot of passing with Meeks and Underwood leaving. So I think all guys need to get a little sharper with protecting the ball. So I think everyone has kind of their homework assignments for the offseason, but the development is also going to come from all these guys getting better year over year. So they got to do that. Right. Yeah, I would be very happy to see Brendan Tucker uh take maybe like a little bit more of a point guard skill set, like you said, getting better with passing just because, you know, whether he's going to be, you know, we're, he doesn't have to be PG one, but just to have a guy in house who is you know ready to step up in that role in case something freaky happens. Like we saw this year. Yeah. It would be helpful if, uh, if everyone could limit the turnovers and limit the fouls because those are two huge issues we talked about as themes of the season. You also wanted to talk about the schedule for next season because we do know some details. Obviously, there's the return trip to North Carolina, and then Charleston is going to be playing in the Charleston Classic. Uh, So the field was announced. It's going to be an event at TD Arena. Always a good tournament, ESPN tournament. The field this year is going to be the Cougs, along with Colorado State, Davidson, Furman, Old Dominion, Penn State, South Carolina, and Virginia Tech. We know Virginia Tech's a tournament team. Uh, we know Davidson's probably going to be a tournament team. Furman is always solid. Uh, South Carolina is going to draw fans. What, what's your take on uh, this year's field? I think it's totally stacked, and I think I'm going to end up trying to get tickets. I'm not sure. I don't know what they cost. But, uh, Ooh, nice. Yeah, it is, it's such a good field that, you know, we – I think Old Dominion is, like, the weakest team in it. Like, so let's, let's say we play Old Dominion the first game. Win or lose, we're going to play, like, such a quality team – next it's like we can't we can't play a weak team really in the uh in the whole affair so i think hopefully it's sort of a sign of things to come with like sort of an aggressive non-con schedule i think we have the opportunity to play a lot of like really good teams and you know with a young team sort of like trial by fire i think it it sets up really nicely to be at home especially against you know some teams that you couldn't get to come play you at home yeah, it's always good to get into the into the classic. It's obviously played every year at TV Arena, but Charleston can only play every four years. That's I'm still tough. bummed. Yeah, like I'm still bummed about the COVID year that got canceled. That would have had Charleston versus Cade Cunningham mm. and Oklahoma State. Um, 
Tennessee was in that one. They had a really good year. That that one sucks to not have gotten played. But yeah, this is a, a strong field and should have good attendance with South Carolina, Furman, Davidson. They all, they'll all have fans who will travel down. And usually you get four games out of that. Charleston usually gets like a, a game against one of the, a, an out of the bracket game against one of those teams. So yeah, it's like, can um, and do then, no wrong. I mean, man. can do no wrong. And then Charleston's got a new CAA schedule. We don't know what it's going to be, but Hampton is now in the, in the CAA, uh, Monmouth, North Carolina A&T, Stony Brook, who knows with divisions, with travel partners, like what that schedule is going to look like. But Charleston's going to see, I would imagine, all those teams at least once. Yeah, and uh, I again, we'll see like if they're playing Stony Brook, if they're playing Monmouth, like the, the northern schools that come in. But it is nice to have like robust schedule that can be, you know, it's, it's close to Charleston, relatively speaking. So I think, you know, you'd expect them to do pretty well. Uh, I mean, I know A&T is a really tough road environment for other teams, but A&T and Hampton, as they are now, are teams that, you know, you'd expect Charleston to be able to beat, and uh, so yeah. hopefully they can take care of business. But I think Monmouth is maybe the best addition. I'm, I'm pretty high on uh, From a basketball standpoint. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, they almost won their conference the other yeah, day. Yeah, it, it was a good game. And I think uh, Coach King Rice is a really good coach, and yeah, fun fun program. So I hope we get to play them, but uh, that'll definitely be, I think, a, a boon to the conference's strength overall. Yeah, yeah. Monmouth is a is a real solid men's basketball addition, mm-hmm. um, and Stony Brook has success, and you know all these teams definitely have potential, and they're in the CA footprint. So I'm I'm excited to to visit those road environments and see how Charleston stacks up. Mm-hmm. Like I said, Charleston's going to have some expectations next year. It was kind of a blank slate, low bar this year, but depending on who comes back and depending on who the Charleston coaching staff kind of fills out that roster with, um, will determine how optimistic we should be. So I'm excited. Um, dude, thanks for coming on to talk an hour about hoops and recap the whole season. Is there anything we missed before we wrap up? I think we got it. Yeah, I think we, we covered it, covered it all. Um, well, thank you everybody for listening, uh, all season long. Thank you, Mr. Redshirt Jr. for stopping by a couple times this year. And uh, we'll just see how this offseason plays out. But it's been a, a really solid season for CFC Hoops. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tommy. I appreciate the multiple appearances. And happy to uh, judge this year with some abstract standards, but ready to get to winning next year. <laughs> yeah, good stuff, man. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you uh, in the fall.